Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Karen Tumulty, and I am a national political correspondent for the Washington Post and a native Texan who, it doesn't take much to get me back home. It's an invitation, a hint of an invitation, and I am so happy to be here for my second Texas Tribune Festival in a row, and also uh, excited that we are have here on the stage one of the most intriguing figures, I think, in politics today, and this is uh, Professor Larry Lessig, who is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at the Harvard Law School, and a candidate for president who is running uh, for what he would says would be a referendum presidency, that basically he had two promises, one of which is that he would address one big issue, which is the corruption of representative democracy, and that once he had put into place a program to address that, he would immediately resign and turn over his presidency to his vice president. And last night, Larry made some news by going back and retracting 50% of his campaign promises. <laughs> so could you- Now I'm uh, just gonna resign, that's right. all. <laughs> so could you, first of all, let's, let's talk about the news. What, what, what is it that you decided last night that you, which part of this program wasn't gonna work? Well, so this is a great, illustration of what led me to make the decision last night to withdraw the promise to resign. Um, because, you know, the idea of a referendum presidency is new. And uh, when it was described, people immediately fixated on the resignation point. So they would say, what, you're going to be elected and resign? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to be elected passed the most important democracy legislation in 50 years, and then after that's done, I'll step aside. Yeah, you know, but you're gonna resign? And, and so it made it impossible to actually get people to focus on what I think is the critical thing we've gotta find a way for people to focus on. And, you know, people in the political media and, uh, and the DNC basically took the position, well, you're not a serious candidate if this is what you're going to do. So my objective is not to resign. My objective is to find a way to move what I think is the critical uh, change that we need in American politics today to address, you rightly described it, the corruption of representative democracy. Well, first of all, your ideas are, in fact, gaining traction out there as evidenced by the fact that when you first floated the idea that you might run for the presidency in August, you said that your big test would be whether you were able to raise a million dollars. And within a month, you had done that from about 10,000 donors uh, across the country. I mean, you are now qualified for uh, public financing of your presidential campaign. What is it about the, why is there a corruption of democracy? What, what are the factors that are driving this, and how would you go about fixing them? Well, let's, let's start 
let's start a little bit back from that. Um, I, I, do people here know somebody named Aaron Swartz? How many people know who Aaron Swartz is? Okay, so Aaron Swartz was this very close friend, dear friend, um, internet genius boy who um, tragically committed suicide um, a couple years ago. Um, and so Aaron, uh, about nine years ago, came to visit me when I was in Berlin. And um, at that time, I was working on my last, what would turn out to be the last book I would write about the internet and copyright policy. That was my career at that point. I was preparing to give my first TED talk about copyright policy. I was incredibly excited to describe all of this to Aaron. And Aaron looked at me after I described what I was doing. And he said, so um, why do you think you're going to have any effect on any of the issues you care about, so long as we have this deeply corrupted government. And I was a little bit miffed because I wanted him to be excited about the work I was doing. And I said to him, you know, well, you know, Aaron, it's, it's not my field. It's not my field. He said, you mean as an academic, it's not your field? I said, yes, as an academic, it's not my field. He said, well, what about as a citizen? Is it your field as a citizen? Because what you know if you ever let yourself recognize it, is there's no ability to make sensible policy in copyright or internet or any other important area because of this deeply corrupting. And on that evening, because of that conversation, I decided, and he and I agreed, I was going to give up my work and take up this cause of trying to build recognition in a movement around this simple idea. We've got to fix the corruption of representative democracy if we're going to have a chance to deal with any of the issues that people care about. And people say, well, this is just a process issue. And my, my response is, whoa, whoa, <laughs> democracy is not just a process issue. It's like the issue. We will not do anything anybody cares about, whether that's single-payer health care or finding a way to secure Social Security or dealing with the tax code or the debt. None of it until we deal with this. And could you, could you sort of talk, just for a second, the, the components of the corruption, yes, the great. drivers, money? Yeah. Well, the, you know, you've set it up so nicely when you say representative democracy. The idea of representative democracy is that citizens are equal, right? But when we have a system for funding campaigns where 158 families have given half the money in this election cycle so far, that is not a system where citizens are equal. When you ima imagine members of Congress spending 30 to 70% of their time dialing for dollars, not randomly, they're not just randomly dialing people, right? They're calling very particular people, people with assets that make it worth the telephone call. That is not a system which is giving citizens equal representation inside of the system. So in the way we fund campaigns, we have a radical inequality. But that's not the only place we have inequality, right? Um, uh, the United States House is riven with um, political gerrymandering, right? So this is where politicians pick the voters rather than voters picking the politicians. And it's structured so that out of 435 uh, seats, only about 90, that's probably an exaggeration, it's probably less than 90, but 90 are competitive, which means 345 seats are not competitive, which means that if you are in the minority party 
in any of those 345 seats. So if you're a Republican in a Democratic safe seat, or if you're a Democrat in a Republican safe seat, your representative has no real reason to worry much about you because the only thing your representative is worrying about is a challenge from a primary opponent, which is typically somebody on the more extreme side, right? And the consequence of that is this incredibly polarized Congress, which amplifies the polarization in America. It turns out Americans are not so polarized, but once they aggregate the way they do and Congress amplifies that, we have the most polarized Congress since the Civil War. And what that means is we have a Congress that can't do anything. And we have a system where 89 million Americans don't have effective representation in Congress. So, so once again, this is a system that is not equal in representation. And then the third, the obvious one, which um, you know, is it's amazing we still have to fight about this, but the way in which you know, systems make it harder for some people to vote than other people to vote. You know, so 10 million Americans in the last election had to wait more than a half an hour to vote. Okay, now, if you've got an iPhone and a nanny at home, that doesn't matter to you much. Okay, half an hour is not a half. But if you're a working person who can't afford childcare, who you know has got one or two jobs you're trying to do, that's a poll tax that you can't afford to pay. Um, and yet we 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 allow these inequalities to exist to basically say certain people will find it harder to participate than others. So these are all ways in which we produce this inequality. Um, and, and corrupt what representative democracy is about. But the reason I care about it is not because I'm some you know, moral egalitarian. This is not motivated by egalitarianism. My concern is the way in which this corrupt system makes it impossible for our government to deal with any of the issues we know it must deal with. It just turns out, you know, corruption is the disease. Restoring equality would be the cure. And I'm concerned about the corruption because I think we, have a we need a government that can solve the problems that we face. We have enormous problems as a nation. And so what I've recognized is finding a way to restore citizen equality would be the mechanism that we could do to bring about uh, the solving of this corruption. Well, one challenge you have is um, the fact that last Tuesday night, I was in Las Vegas for the Democratic debate, and you were not. Mm -hmm. um, there were there were two and possibly there were three, no, two candidates on stage who have not raised as much money as you have, and the reason they were there is that the according to the rules being used by the Democratic Party, they are polling the one percent or whatever it is, and you are not. And that's your big challenge: is that your name is not being asked in the polls. So how are you going to get around this? And have you had any conversations with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the chairman of the Democratic Party, or the networks that are staging this debate? Because again, you have now qualified for public financing of this campaign. You have now raised enough money, enough people are voting for you with their checkbooks, and yet you're not on that stage, and Lincoln Chafee is. Yeah, well, he's got a name like, with a name like Lincoln, it's hard right. not to pull he it. He was a good um, president, Lincoln. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to complain. Um, oh, or, go ahead. Or I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be the Jim Webb on this stage right now um, <laughs> um, and whine about this. But, um, 
you know, there are two separate issues. One issue is the rules that decide how they're going to filter out candidates who should be on stage versus not on stage. Um, and, and the argument we've made is, you know, the rules um, have the effect, whether intended like this or not, I don't know, but they have the effect of making it almost impossible for someone who's not a politician or a billionaire to participate, right? Because if I were a billionaire, I could afford to spend two years going around the country becoming a candidate for president and be able to qualify. If I were a United States senator, I could spend two years going around the country getting the name recognition to qualify. My salary would be paid by the United States Senate while I did that, um, but I would be doing the job as a candidate to become president. But because I'm neither of those two things, I'm a law professor, once I announce my candidacy for president, um, I'm not allowed to collect a salary from Harvard anymore. Uh, and because of the rules of campaign finance, I'm not allowed to collect a salary from my campaign until two months before the first primary. So the window that I have to go out there and be a presidential campaign depends on you know how many credit cards I can apply for and um, and how much savings is on my bank. Now you know I've got three young kids, I've got a house, I've got a wife who's a public interest lawyer. So this is not a simple task, right? So our point was rather than this standard that has the effect of just filtering out all but politicians and billionaires, why not look at the viability of the campaign? So that's why we said, look, we're gonna, I'm going to run if we can raise a million dollars in less than 30 days. Um, and if we did that, that was a signal that there's a lot of support for this type of campaign, and that support should be the sort of thing they looked at. And we, we beat that target um, and stood up a campaign very quickly. We have an incredibly senior campaign staff, you know, people who have run this type of thing before. We are in ads in, in Iowa and in New Hampshire, qualified for public funding, you know, everything you would think you need to do. Um, but according to the rules, we don't, we don't qualify. So, you know, the first thing is a, is a criticism of the rule. The second, the second point, though, which is more troubling to me, is, is just the way the Democratic Party has responded to this. Um, you know, when I originally was thinking about this, we had a conversation with somebody inside the Democratic Party, and they were very encouraging. They were like, I'm sure everybody would be, you know, happy to have you up on stage, so, uh, on the debate, so you should, you should go for it. But when I announced, uh, the Democratic Party didn't do what it typically does, which is to send out a press release saying, welcome to the race. That meant that the polls wouldn't include me on their polls. So we had a rule that said I had to be at 1% on the polls, but the polls were not asking my name when they polled. Um, and we went to the polls and we're like, what's going on? And they said, well, the Democratic Party doesn't seem to think you're a candidate, so why should you be considered a candidate? And Politico's position was, look, you know, 1% is not a big number. That It's within the um, margin of error. If they just had run you on these polls, you would have qualified to 1%. So this whole idea was ridiculous to, you know, lead you up to a place that you wouldn't be on. And, and you know, so have I talked to Debbie Wasserman Schultz? No. We had a call schedule. She canceled it. Um, I tried to reschedule it. She's been too busy for a month to get on the phone um, to talk about this. My political people have tried to talk to the DNC about this, but, you know, their view is if we let Lessig on, then we have to let the 140 other people who have 
said they're running for president. Who've raised a million dollars and... Uh, Our view is everybody who's raised a million dollars should be allowed on that stage, you know, because it turns out there's one, there's one who's not a politician. Um, now, maybe it's the Democrats look at the Republicans and they say, geez, the non-politicians on that stage are causing a lot of trouble. They don't want um, non-politicians on the Democratic stage. But, you know, I, I, I guess I'm just so naive and such a believer in my party that I can't really believe it's conspiratorial in that sense. But the reality is, here I am with a stronger, you know, raise more money than two, possibly three of the candidates, five of the Republican candidates, got a real staff, everything going, and still not clear I'm going to be on the second stage. Well, so could we talk about some of your ideas here? One is public financing. And there are two things you hear about public financing. I mean, there is a form of public financing. There's that dollar checkoff that you can do on your taxes every year. I think that most people don't. And whenever you hear public financing raised, a lot of people will just say, oh, that's welfare for politicians. How do you, how do you counter that argument? Well, you know, I think the first thing to do is to be motivated to find a solution. You've got to be convinced there's a real problem here, right? Um, and, and one of the things that I experienced as I watched that debate was the feeling that there was a real reason why I should have been on that stage, because I would have said something that none of those people were saying. You know, I love the Democratic candidates. I think they're incredible. Well, you know, some of them, um, uh, incredible candidates. And, uh, um, and they are advancing really powerful ideas for what should happen to the nation. But I was on Bill Maher last night, and this little analogy seemed to work, so let me try it again. Um, you know, it, it feels like a family going to, um, arguing about what they're going to do when they get to Atlantic City, you know, and the kids want to go to the boardwalk, the parents want to go to the beach, the banker uncle wants to go to the casino. Okay, so they're all like talking about what are we going to do when we get to Atlantic City? And I'm the guy who's saying, look, there are four flat tires on the car and somebody's stolen the battery, right? We are not going to Atlantic City until we fix the car. And that's the same thing, you know, when I listen to these Democrats talk about, you know, they're promising the moon. And I'm like, I wish, I want more than anything these things to be capable of being passed. But there is this institution called Congress that is, that is a failed institution right now, deeply failed institution, a corrupted and crippled institution. Um, and it's crippled and corrupted because both of the way, because of the way we fund campaigns and because of this exaggeration of polarization because of the way we select representatives. So we could change the way we fund campaigns in a statute. We could change the way we select representatives in a statute. These are two things which Congress could fix if only we could build a political movement to get them to fix it. Um, and so the funding one, you know, um, uh, I favor the idea of bottom-up citizen-funded elections, bottom-up public funding. So some Republicans have talked about this um, and saying, well, let's just give every voter a voucher, you know, like a Starbucks card or a Target card and you can give those vouchers to people who agree to fund their campaigns with small dollars only. A $50 voucher to every voter would produce $7 billion, which is about three times the total amount raised and spent in the last presidential election. So that's real money, but it would be money coming from millions of people 
not money coming from the tiny, tiny few. So that's one idea. Um, then there's a the typical idea. The Democrats have pushed the idea of matching funds, so small contributions get matched. Uh, John Sarbanes has a bill where there can be matched up to nine to one. So again, you could run a successful campaign never taking large contributions, only taking small contributions. Both of these are ways to radically change the way campaigns are funded, and I think both of them would be fantastic reforms that Congress should enact tomorrow. So that rather than spending you know, time as a congressperson calling the people who might give you 1,000 or 2,000 or 20, or going to these fundraiser events for big funders, you would be raising money in a much broader way. Um, and you know, of course, there are a couple, I think literally two congressmen who do this. Um, uh, congressman O'Rourke, who I saw around here, uh, um, focuses you know, very heavily on raising small contributions. John Sarbanes has restricted has, he had this amazing scheme where a bunch of his large contributors created a fund which he was only allowed to touch if he raised a thousand small contributions. That forced him to go out and raise these small contributions. These are people who are trying to live under the rules that they want the world to be. Um, but what we need is the rules to be like that so that Congress could be free of the funders and actually free to leave. Well, the other argument that you hear is that, look, the Supreme Court has decided money is speech. We are now living in the post-Citizens United era. If you want to fix the system, accept the fact that you're going to get these gigantic, rich flows of money into politics, and just make it transparent. We have the technology now where you can report everything in real time. Do it that way. Sort of accept the fact that we're in the Wild West when it comes yeah. to money. So that's a strong argument made um, uh, uh, by people, especially in the Republican Party. This is the solution to the super PAC problem. Um, but what we got to recognize is how that solution is just an even more extreme version of the corruption we've got right now. But let's be clear, when I use the word corruption, what I, what I mean by this. I don't believe members of Congress are corrupt in the old-fashioned sense of corruption. I don't believe that they're engaged in bribery. I don't believe they're there to try to make themselves rich. I don't believe any of the sort of, you know, evil or criminal conceptions of corruption apply to the vast majority of Congress. I'm sure there's some, but the vast majority of Congress, those are people, mem members of Congress go to Congress for the right reasons. You know, they believe they're gonna do good according to their conception of the good. They go there believing this is what they're gonna do, and they get sucked into a system where they are obsessively focused on the tiny group of people who will fund their campaigns. So they are dependent on their funders. And they're also dependent on the voters in their districts to get elected. So they have these two dependencies. But the conception of representative democracy that Madison gave us said we'd have a government that would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. And to be clear, in Federalist 57, he said, by the people I mean, quote, not the rich, more than the poor. Okay, so their conception of dependence was we depended on everybody equally, not the rich more than the poor. But what we've developed is a system where they are dependent on both the rich and the rest of us. And that, that conflicting dependency is a corruption of the design of the system. That's the sense of corruption I mean. Well, if you lifted all contributor limits, the business model of fundraising would, would change dramatically. You wouldn't be raising from $5,000 contributors. You'd be raising from people who are giving you know, a million or $2 million. So right now, as I said, we have 158 families. 
giving half the money in this election cycle? Right. It'd be 100 families. You know, it's banana republic democracy. That's the direction yeah. that we're already moving, and that would just license it so that it would be good for the politicians. They wouldn't be spending 70% of their time raising money. They'd just be going, you know, to weekend spas in Hawaii or wherever, and, you know, they're going to the Sheldon Adelson primary or the George Soros primary or whatever it is. Um, but that would not be any less corruption. It would be more corrupt because it would be even a tinier group of people who they were so dependent upon that was not the people. And the table stakes now are basically half the price of a yacht from somebody who won't notice if they're missing half the price right. of a yacht. I mean, the reality so, is, you know, invoke Bernie Sanders, let's have the Bernie Sanders move here, right? We have an enormous inequality in the United States right now. So there are some really super, super rich people for whom this money is peanuts. But, you know, they see congressmen and senators and presidents bending over backwards to make them happy. They like it. It's kind of the life of the nobility for them, right? So, so there's a natural way in which this grows and becomes ever more dominant. And we've got to find a way to fight it back because if we don't, the whole idea of representative democracy disappears, right? And the reason why ordinary people have to participate disappears. But, so for the last three presidents in a row that we have elected in this country. They have all argued in some way or fashion that the system itself can be made to work as is if the right person is there. You know, Bill Clinton was gonna be the third way. George W. Bush was gonna be the uniter, not the divider. Barack Obama was gonna be that guy who was gonna prove that we weren't red states and blue states, we're just the United States. It, with each one of them, the system has gotten more and more polarized to the point where, you know, it used to be 60% of the Senate used to be somewhere between the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat. There is now absolutely no overlap in the voting records of the two parties. Do you think the American public is going to be able to buy once again or this would be the fourth time in a row, that really you can make the system work if you just have the right person conciliatory, compromising, bringing everybody to the table elected. Yeah, well, I fear, like Charlie Brown and Lucy, that we are going to experience Charlie Brown all over again, right? I fear exactly that because, you know, this is the experience that I, I have as a candidate, you know, in this race. Um, you know, I go to these events, I was at the New Hampshire Democratic Convention watching these amazing candidates give their stump speeches. So a politician's stump speech is a, is a relatively, um, you know, familiar form to it. You know who the audience is, you know what they care about, so you go through a list of all the things you're going to promise them, right? So. Um, you're going to promise them single payer, you're Bernie, it's single payer health care. You're going to break up the banks. You're going to restore Glass Steagall. You know, you've got all these things. And each time you say one, the audience cheers. It's a, you know, it's a song and dance. And, and it's really, you know, quite exciting to watch. And they're very, very good at it, right? But the point is, in the context of that, it's very hard to be the guy on the side saying, wait a minute. Um, you know, we've got to recognize that these things can't happen because it's not about finding Superman or Superwoman. We have to recognize that Washington is Krypton, 
Remember, that's, they lose their power. Super people lose their power in Krypton, right? Washington is Krypton. You could, you could elect Superman or Superwoman, but when they get there, they will lose their power. They will be sucked into a system, and it's the system we have to find a way to talk about and address and attack. And, you know, don't talk about it in the words of systems. Let's just talk about it in terms of democracy, getting our democracy back, right? I mean, because, you know, people go off to war and fight for democracy, and all I'm saying is we ought to, we ought to be able to mobilize to recognize we don't have a representative democracy today. In no sense of the word do we have a representative democracy today. And if we don't get one, then none of these things these people are talking about are going to have any hope, any hope. Um, and so um, I completely agree with you. We've got to find a way to, to stop Superman thinking and get people to recognize something which there's no natural place in the political, the architecture of political rhetoric to, to even say. Well, what about the fact, and again, getting back to the money, I've been in Washington long enough, I mean, I've, to know that every time they try to fix the system, and this is, go back to post-Watergate. You had major, major campaign finance reform as a result, and it created, and now it seems almost, you know, hearkening back to a earlier naive era when we thought PACs were the problem. And then you get McCain-Feingold, which gets rid of soft money, because that was the problem. And what it really does is destroys the parties, is the truth about McCain-Feingold. Every time Washington tries to come to grips with money in politics, the money just finds another way. Yeah, so um, that's true and not true. Okay, so it's true um, when you look at the strategy of campaign finance reform, which is about suppressing speech. Um, because all of the things you spoke of were examples of them trying to find ways to, to get rid of the bad speech. And they press down here, and the speech comes up there. They press down here, the speech comes up there. And the Supreme Court has become pretty clear about this, um, that this is not a constitutional strategy for dealing with campaign finance reform. But we forget that the other thing that happened after Watergate was presidential public funding. Every president between Nixon and Obama was elected with presidential public funding. Nobody benefited more from presidential public funding than Ronald Reagan, who ran three national campaigns on the public's dime. There would never have been a Ronald Reagan had there not been presidential public funding, because in 1976, he was not going to get money from Republicans to challenge the sitting Republican president. But everybody accepted that system, and the system pretty much worked, pretty much worked to allow them to do the job of running for president rather than fundraising perpetually. When Ronald Reagan ran for re-election in 1984, he attended eight fundraisers. Wow. When Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2012, he, had, he attended 228 fundraisers. You know, how do you, how do you run the free world as president going to 228 fundraisers, right? This is a difference solely caused by the fact that Nobody kept presidential public funding up to date, so therefore it became clear that you couldn't, and Obama could not possibly accept that, especially given the outside money in it. But so, so the point is, if we weren't so committed to reform on the cheap, just say no reform, and instead embraced changing the way elections are funded by actually providing money 
then I think we could begin to solve the problem. Now, again, this goes back to the point you said that I never responded to, which is, well, this is just welfare for politicians. Look, the question is, who's going to pay for elections? The corporations, the rich people, or the average citizen? Who's going to pay? Because one of those three is going to pay for it, right? Um, right now, we have a system where it's basically rich people and corporations. They're paying for the elections. And if you believe that the politicians don't respond to the funders of their campaigns, then I think you have serious work to do with a psychiatrist or something like that, right? I mean, obviously, the fact that that's who's funding your campaigns matters. And all that public funding is doing is saying, okay, instead of the rich people or the corporations funding campaigns, we should set up a system where we all are funding campaigns. And whether that's top-down public funding, which is not what I support, but that's the presidential public funding model, or bottom-up public funding, which is matching funds or vouchers or something like that, doesn't really matter as much. What it is doing is creating a system where the politicians are not dependent on somebody other than the people, which is what a representative democracy is supposed to be. Well, what about the role of the modern media here? Um, in that, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point, and you look basically right now in the House of Representatives, there are somewhere between 40 and 50 Republicans who have their, their own base of support that exists completely outside their party structure. You see someone like Ted Cruz in the United States Senate who can essentially go to the Senate floor, call Mitch McConnell a liar, which he did, quite recently, and again, I mean, they, thanks to the nature of, in part, the nature of the media, less than the nature of the money, they are able to appeal to a following outside the structure. I mean, how do you come, how do you come to grips with that? Oh my gosh, that is, that is such an impossible problem, way, way above anything I could ever figure out, but it is a deeply, deeply troubling problem because you know, it's, it's oddly a product of increasing competition. We usually think competition's a great thing, but in the context of media, it has this bizarre effect of turning any news into entertainment because the only thing they're doing, they're constantly competing for ratings um, because they're all, you know, desperately trying to figure out how to survive now that they have 50,000 competitors as opposed to two. Right. Um, and so, they, you know, the business model of modern media becomes the business model of just how do you get enough attention. And what that means is certain, kind of, uh, certain kinds of stories are easier than others. Uh, and what are those stories? Clowns. Clowns do really well in this system, right? We spent eight weeks liming the depths of Donald Trump's brain. Now, look, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. I know it doesn't take eight weeks to understand Donald Trump's brain. I, you know, I could put together a course plan. It would take maybe an hour. That's all it would take to understand Donald Trump. But we spent eight weeks, every single news show, every single day, did but this. Wait, wait. But now whose fault is that? Because that re first Republican debate smashed ratings record. So is the media supposed to not give people what they want to watch? Well, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm not... I, of course, that's the point. The media is giving people what they want to watch. People are responding. Um, you know, David Carr, like, point here. People are responding um, to the titillation of what they're giving them. So, you know, clowns do well. Um, um, and, you know, and, and I don't... 
you know, I, I, I both feel the media ought to do better, but feel I understand why they can't do any better. It's, it's, it's sort of the way I feel about Congress. I both feel Congress ought to be able to do better, but because of the way campaigns are funded, I understand why they don't do better, right? So I, I'm not judgmental in the sense that I don't understand the forces that drive them to this, but the consequence is a disaster. So, you know, and I feel this every single day. Um, Donald Trump can, you know, talk about his ridiculous ideas. Um, you know, some of them I like, like when he talks about money and politics, he's, he's great. Um, um, but, you know, when he, he evokes the worst of American history, the hatred towards immigrants or people on the bay, it's just really, really outrageous, but, but it's entertainment, and so therefore he gets an endless amount of attention. But, you know, if you want to step forward and say, you know, we've got to find a way to get the public to pay attention to the fundamental problem with our democracy, um, there's, there's no appetite for that in the media. You know, like I, I've been on a ton of shows, um, uh, never on any national show for more than five minutes at a time, and half of it is talking about the resignation point. So, you know, how do you get us to a place where we can even understand the problem. That's, that's the point. And, and we have to recognize this is very different from the way it was 40 years ago. Like 40 years ago, um, half of America was watching one of three television shows every single night, right? There was, I'm not saying it's a great thing, but all I'm saying, but, but I am noticed, you know, saying that we ought to recognize that that changes the ability of people to come to understand things that are not naturally titillating or, you know, clownish or, um, or extreme, which of course is the other, the other way in which people get attention. Well, we're going to open this up to questions in just a minute, but I wanted to go back to an issue that you were known for before, this, before you decided to become a, a candidate, which is you've been a great advocate for sort of the, the free flow of information in the digital world. Uh, you were one of the first people ever to use the term net neutrality, which for you know people my age, I have to, every time I hear the phrase, I have to have somebody, now what, what is that again? But basically it means, it is something that young people, and it's in the data that the parties have looked at, there are, there are very few issues that young people are more passionate about in the 21st century than their access to information, and they understand it, and they get it, and at a moment when one of the biggest questions in the next election is what could possibly motivate young people to come to the polls when there is not a person named Barack Obama at the top of the ticket, why are we hearing so little about this issue, which, again, is something that, in particular, young people know and care about and understand? It's a great question. So. Um... In the Republican Party, we're not hearing anything about it because the Republican Party has taken a position they're against it. Uh, and in the Democratic Party, we're not hearing much about it because, um, as you quite um, cleverly no commented during our pre-game show conversation, um, uh, Hillary Clinton is not going to be out there as the technology president because nobody she doesn't want anybody to think technology and Clinton yeah, in the same sense. Yeah, technology's not 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 a good subject with her at the moment. Um, and it is just not the natural place for Bernie Sanders to be. You know, he you know he's got very important econ economic inequality issues that's driving him, and network neutrality is just not in that space. Um, now, you know, one of the nice things about 
saying, I'm not going to resign, I'm going to be a regular candidate for president, I'm going to tell you the first thing is this reform, we're going to get this reform done, but I've, you know, with my own hands now written out 20 uh, different issue statements that describes each of these issues and where I think about them. Um, I'm, you know, really eager to be able to talk about the network neutrality issue because, of course, you're exactly right. This is an issue um, that I feel I have some um, experience and competence in, and it's very, it's very, very core to my belief, the passionate belief about what we have to do to preserve the opportunity for innovation and creativity in the future. And, and it's really important to understand why that's the way to think about it. You know, the internet um, is an architecture. It's just a design, a technical design. And the consequence of its original design was to destroy the power of the middleman. Uh, it was what you know, technicians call the end-to-end -end principle, which is um, the principle basically says that there's the, the network itself is as stupid or simple as possible, and all the power is at the edge which you might say is what a democracy is supposed to be, right? All the power is in the people. There's not supposed to be these people in the middle controlling things. That's what the internet was supposed to be. And that's the way it was originally designed. But what happens circa, you know, beginning in 1995 is that business and governments looked at that and they said, we're not really excited about a network where people can do whatever they want <laughs> privately, you know. How are we going to be able to monitor them or to sell them stuff if they can do all this stuff private? So they've modified the architecture of the internet. They've changed its design. They've layered on top of it structures of control to try to turn it into something that it wasn't originally. And one of them, uh, one of these modifications is the ability of the gatekeepers to slow things down or block certain things based on whether they are being paid to do that. And the principle of network neutrality says we want the original internet. We want the value of the original internet because what we know is co competition at the edge, consumers and creators, is the, is the only way real innovation happens here. Um, uh, and so the regulation that the network neutrality people are calling for is just basically the regulation to preserve this original value, this original architecture of what the internet was. And I, you know, it was the most amazing political movement that um, I, I wasn't directly part of this movement, so I can praise it uh, effusively, um, uh, that um, you know, rallied millions of people to, to reach out to the FCC and say to the FCC, defend network neutrality. It was the most comments the FCC has ever received about anything in the history of the FCC. Um, and they kind of were forced to do it. Um, but of course, uh, what the SEC is doing is now being threatened by about 12 lobbyists in the House of Representatives who are succeeding in attaching riders to bills that will destroy the opportunity for uh, network neutrality to survive. So, you know, this is a really intense fight right now. Um, and I completely agree with you. It's a, it's a bad thing that this is not a presidential level conversation. In the last election, of course, Barack Obama said he was not going to take second seat to anybody on network neutrality. Um, and, uh, and this became, you know, an issue um, in the first of the Obama elections, 2008, and I think we have to return it now. And it, it was interesting, too, that he didn't finally deliver on that until after 
re-election. Essentially, beca and became a lame duck, wasn't it? It was even mm -hmm. after the after the exactly midterms. Right. After the midterms, right? Well, I, it looks like we have plenty of questions out here. Um, I would just ask that you identify yourself and, and keep it to a question. And why don't we start on this side? Hi. Um, hi, Larry. You are hi. a hero of mine. I'm Deborah Peel. I'm a physician, and I'm the uh, founder and chair of patient privacy rights. And mm. one of the things I want to pick up on is, you know, well, first of all, I, I love your book. I hope you'll sign it afterwards um, about code. And uh, you, you've just been talking about the, the deformation of the Internet. And we're talking about politics. And, and uh, one of the things that's happened is now that we, we now have, I believe, an Internet of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And everyone's personal data, especially health data, is collected uh, indiscriminately. And uh, But... The ways that the data is used, I think, maybe also corrupt and deform politics. So a couple of years ago, I think it was Mailman that uh, was uh, the RNC chair, and he said something like, and we know who our voters are, and they're not the latte-drinking, Volvo-driving, yoga-practicing, sushi-eating people. And then uh, we know, too, that part of how Barack was elected was targeting, right? <laughs> targeting people. And so I wonder if you've thought about this issue that people can be told now, because the parties know so much about them, essentially exactly what they hear, and does that contribute to the corruption and to the um, deformation of representative politics? Shouldn't, shouldn't everyone have to talk to everyone in the same way? It's a great, great question. Um, I, of course, this began with direct mail. And the reason that's, I mean, because what happens with direct mail is, once again, you, you begin to have acoustically separated messages. Like what I send one community doesn't necessarily have to conform to what I say to a different community. Because yeah. in the day before the internet, you'd have no way to even know that I was saying different things here. And I can tell you, because I've you know, been involved in some campaigns for the last couple years, both this year and also last election cycle with uh, the Mayday Pack, the technology for targeting is really astonishing. Who is it? They can basically get down to, and what they're targeting is, is you know, advertisement on the screens as well as messaging. But the point is, your vision of the internet is a function of what the internet knows about you. Um, great book, uh, blanking on the title now. Um, um, we're basically talking about how you know we have this image of the Google search. There's no such thing as the Google search. Your Google search is different from mine. Everybody's Google search is different from everybody else because it's constantly being adjusted based on what it thinks you're interested in, and so conforming your view. And it encourages this kind of micro-conversation, which creates a problem to the extent that what's being said here is different from what's being said there. I, I completely but, agree with that. But and it's more than that. It's more than just the ads, because I spent, in the last presidential election, I spent days going around door knocking with the Obama campaign. And it was also, you yes. would go up and knock on the door of the house, and you didn't want to talk to whoever answered. You would walk up to the house, and you were looking for their daughter, and you knew that she was going off to college, and you wanted to, and she was going to college in a swing state, you wanted to make sure she had an absentee ballot, and you knew she cared about the environment. And you were knocking on that door to find that one person in that one house. Yep. So. And I don't know how that genie is put back in a bottle. I mean, yeah. Um, now. Control of personal information. Right. I mean, I understand 
conceptually, I just don't understand politically how that's put back right. in the bottle. Anyway, yes, sir. Good afternoon, Professor. Um, I'm an Iraqi-American uh, college student studying economics right now. And I guess, for one, I'd like to say that I'm a big fan of your brilliant vision. Uh, and I thank you for coming here to talk to us today. My question is in regards to the Trans-Pacific Partnership that's going into really the voting stage for each respective government. You've, been, you've had a pedigree of um, being a political activist in regards to cyber freedom, and I'm wondering how, if you can publicly speak on the implications of that deal today. So, um, I've been a critic of the TPP, uh, not because I'm you know, deeply opposed to free trade agreements, like some people seem to be. I'm not deeply opposed to free trade agreements. I'm a critic of the TPP because um, it was developed in a process that can't help but produce all sorts of corrupting, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not just that it's behind closed doors, that's bad, but it's also, it's something like 866 of the 945 uh, uh, negotiator representatives on this were basically corporate interest representatives, right? So, so it's a process where you're basically handing over the lawmaking craft to deeply interested people who come up with a deal that they're all happy with, but doesn't necessarily have a relation to the public good. So for example, the administration is selling the fact that the TPP is, is um, embracing free trade, knocking down all sorts of tariffs around the world. Well, one of the most egregious tariffs that the United States imposes is our restriction on sugar, right? So we pay basically twice the price of sugar in the United States as anywhere else because the sugar barons in the United States have succeeded in convincing people that we have to protect sugar. Um, that's not changed by the TPP. Sugar is still protected under the TPP, which you know, has this bizarre effect of raising the price of sugar because we subsidize corn production. What that means is that we substitute away from sugar into high fructose corn syrup, something which in 1990 no human had consumed. Now something like 84% uh, uh, of the products on the shelves in a supermarket have high fructose corn syrup in it. Of course, the health consequences of that are dramatic, um, you know, leading, some people think, to the uh, explosion of childhood obesity. But the point is, this because of the corruption that leads to them having this uh, uh, protection for that type of sugar. The other thing, you know, I've long fought against retroactively extending the term of copyrights. Well, there's agreements in this TPP that force us to once again reflect, uh, respect the idea of retroactively extending and taking stuff that's in the public domain and putting it back under copyright. This is the product of a process where there is no public interest in, you know, perspective here. It's just how do we strike a deal? So I'm opposed to it because of that. I've not yet seen, uh, and I've not studied everything about it, but I've not yet seen cybersecurity questions about this. But I'm sure, you know, it's not that I believe that they won't be there. I just haven't seen it. Yes, exactly right. Thank you. Yeah. Okie doke, over here. I'm Rebecca Bell Metero, and I'm a professor at Texas State University and a perennial candidate for State Board of Education here in Texas in my spare time. <laughs> I, my question is, do you see a way that uh, the influence of social norming and uh, just uh, a public opinion changing in the way that uh, it's changed about gay marriage or uh, Silkwood changed uh, attitudes toward nuclear power, Jaws wiped out a bunch of shark species practically, <laughs> uh, do you see a way that 
that something could be created, uh, a, you know, an inconvenient truth uh, or, you know, blackfish for, for what happens with politicians having spent many hours uh, in, you know, on the phone asking for money. So many politicians, I'm sure, would be happy to complain about it if they didn't know that that's what this was going to go toward. Um, yeah, um, it would be wonderful, but I actually don't think that's the nature of the problem. You know, if you think about gay rights, um, gay rights only could uh, mature in the United States by changing the attitudes of millions of Americans. And over time, that happened. Very short amount of time it took. It's quite astonishing to recognize how quickly that happened. But it required people being confronted, and uh, obviously entertainment did a lot of this confronting, with um, you know, the question of why they would discriminate against um, uh, people who had different sexual orientation. And after many years of reflecting on that, most people came around to saying, you know, it's not really any of my business. I shouldn't really care about that. That was about changing people, bringing them to the place where they recognized um, uh, the views that they now hold. With this issue, we know people already think the system is corrupt. They already believe politicians, I think unfairly, I think they already believe politicians are criminals. That's what they think. Um, we did a poll, we found 96% of Americans said that it was important to reduce the influence of money in politics. So that means Republicans too, right? 96%. You know, you say, who are the 4%? Well, you know, it's probably lobbyists are about 4% of America, I don't know. But, <laughs> but so 96% think we should reduce the influence of money in politics. 91% don't think it's possible. So this is the politics of resignation. You know, where you, of course, want it, but you're not going to fight for it if you don't think it's possible, right? Uh, we all like to fly like Superman, but we don't leap off of tall buildings regularly because we have a pretty clear sense of why that wouldn't make much sense. You know, if you'd gone to Egypt under Mubarak and you'd said, what do you think of Mubarak? They would have said, we hate him. And you'd say, well, why aren't you out in the streets? Because, because we're not idiots. We're not going to go out and attack Mubarak because we'd be killed. Um, and I think the biggest uh, thing we need to do with this issue is give people a sense there's something that we could do. Um, and if we could give them that sense, I think there's an enormous amount of um, reform energy, latent energy in the public to do something about this. And this is one way in which I think we progressives have been unhelpful in this debate, because we constantly talk about something which we've not mentioned. I'm really happy we haven't. Citizens United and the Constitution and the Supreme Court and the constitutional problem. And it's not that I don't think that's a problem, but when you talk about this as if it's a constitutional problem, you reinforce the idea there's nothing we can do about it. Right? You know, there are people out there who are trying to get an amendment to the Constitution but anybody who thinks through it and says, wait, you mean we've got to get two-thirds of the United States Senate to vote to overturn Citizens United? And then we've got to get three-fourths of the states to ratify it? Yeah, that's not going to happen. And so then they're even more convinced there's nothing I can do. Which is why in my campaign, what I'm arguing is there is a statute we could pass that would radically change the way we fund campaigns that would give us a, a real representation in the House, that would liberate people from this completely unfair way in which we facilitate voting. It's a statute. It just requires a majority, maybe a supermajority in the Senate, but it doesn't require two-thirds and then three-fourths in the House. And that's a way of saying we could actually do this. And, and I think that's the strategy that basically builds a movement that might make it possible to get it done. So the movie will be titled The Statute. Right. The Statute. <laughs> the Bill. <laughs>
Hey, Lawrence. Um, I'm an Austinite by way of Los Angeles and Boston. Um, a very short time ago, not too long ago, there was a vote in California for gay marriage against gay marriage. The pro-gay marriage side lost, even though it raised significantly more money. Um, both sides had wealthy donors. The pro-gay marriage side had more wealthy donors from Los Angeles, San Francisco area. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is you seem to have a very rosy picture of this ground-up economic democracy. Um, I want to hear some possible negative issues, maybe putting people from South Boston, Dorchester on the same level as Brookline and Newton. Thank you. Yeah, um, and so the final reference is basically to radically different classes being put on the same level. Um, you know, uh, when I talk about money in the political system, I'm not talking about the way money gets spent. I'm talking about the way money gets raised. And the corrupting influence that I'm worried about is the obvious psychology of politicians raising money from these tiny group of people to do what they want to do. The problem of how money gets spent, you know, you might think it's a problem, might not think it's a problem, is, uh, but it's a different issue from how the money gets raised. Um, so that's point one. Point two is, I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who believes that if we fixed the way we raise money in a political system, we're going to have a democracy that I'm happy with. You know, I, I, I'm a little picky about, you know, what government should do. I'm pretty sure that what I think most, uh, you know, should happen most of the time, there would be all sorts of cases where the public voted against this. So I'm not arguing for something because I think it necessarily produces what I think the world ought to do, but I think it would produce what actually is a representative democracy would want the world to do. And so in the context in which that's true, um, what that does for people who are on the wrong side of the decision is give them a reason to engage democratically with the other side to convince them to do something differently. And of course, compared to what Washington does now, producing anything at all would, would be, be amazing. Yeah, no, that's right. But you know, one example of this is when people sometimes argue, like John McCain, who's been a big reformer in the suppressing speech side, He's opposed to public funding. And what he says is, look at Arizona. He says public funding has destroyed Arizona. But my view is what public funding has done is made it possible for Arizona to be Arizona. It just turns out Arizona is a really conservative place, right? So, um, you know, now you could say, oh, it's terrible if it makes it so conservatives have power. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a small d Democrat, right? I believe, or a representative Democrat, right? I believe we ought to have a system that allows people to be represented. And if people are wrong in their political views, I'm happy to go try to persuade them, but I don't want to screw around with the system so that they don't have equal representation in the system. And that's what we do right now. Hi there, my name is Rohan Shah. I study chemical engineering at UT. So this may be a bit of a cynical question, but an uh, analogy that I have is I grew up in Plano, Texas, and in West Plano it was very wealthy and they provided most of the tax. Uh, payments, and then there's East Plano, which is much more lower income. And if you look at the distribution of brand new facilities, roads, quality of schools, quality teachers, it's all in West Plano. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, on the basis of say you pass, you know, the reverse of Citizens United um, and all that, and you pass a liberal, you know, tax policy, wouldn't that shift the tax burden all the way towards the wealthy in the country? And then wouldn't that still have the impact of influence subconsciously the politicians who make voting decisions? Well, you're right. Um, the tax burden on the wealthy has been a very significant motivator of politicians in the current system. Um, 
uh, I had a friend who was at a, a uh, hedge fund fundraiser for Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, my friend said, he thinks he was joking. Um, <laughs> and he said, I hope he was joking. But Barack Obama said, hey, guys, I've not raised your carried interest rate. It's got this special tax rate for hedge fund guys where they pay lower taxes than their secretaries do. He said, I haven't raised your hedge fund rates. You ought to be with me here. And, you know, this is not purely cynical. There is all sorts of examples, I think, of the way our tax system is driven by the implicit thought, am I going to anger these, uh, these potential funders? But if you change the way we funded campaigns, so that you know, people had vouchers or people had matching funds and small dollar funding campaigns, these would be just one you know, vote standing next to another vote. And then we could begin to think about what makes sense um, for tax policy here, not what raises dollars in tax policy for campaigns. Now, you know, it's the common view that, geez, if we had democracy, um, we'd steal all the money from the rich, and so we can't have democracy. Um, but, you know, America is a very conservative place, right? Um, it, you know, the, the support for the opposition to the, quote, death tax is really quite astonishing in America, right? So I, there are countries in the world where I'd be afraid, <laughs> you know, as, a, as somebody who basically likes capitalism working well, I'd be afraid, but I'm not afraid in America. You know, the, the truth is we have radically reduced the pro progressivity of our taxes, you know, in the century in the century. If we could just go back to where we were in the 1990s, it would be a radical change in the, the ability of government to do what government you know, is supposed to be able to do. So nobody's talking about equalizing the wealth through taxes. Well, at least maybe they are. But I'm not talking about equalizing the wealth through taxes. I just want a tax system that's driven by the idea of efficiency and progress progressivity. Those are the two principles. And our tax system is neither efficient nor is it effectively progressive. And I think we have time for one more question. This has really been an amazing hour. So, yes, ma'am. This is the best uh, question. Yes. Great. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Gloria Cisneros Lenore. I live here in Austin. And I first learned about you when I found out that you were not happy about Citizens United, as I was not also. And uh, what I recall was that you raised some funds. I think you were trying to raise like a million or something. I gave a small amount. And, but I never heard what really happened. Did you, you were trying to raise funds to help people that would have a hard time getting a lot of money. I mm -hmm. was just wondering if you could share what happened with that. Well, so, so what we did last year um, was to run an experiment to see whether we could um, intervene in elections and raise this issue uh, and affect the results of the elections in a way that convinced Washington that voters cared about this. Um, and so uh, it was a bad year to do that because many of the candidates who talk about this issue are Democrats, and we explicitly picked incredibly difficult races because if we thought we picked really simple races, nobody would think it was important. So we picked really difficult races, and it was not a great year to be a Democrat with difficult races. It turned out not even easy races. Democrats did bad in all races. Um, um, so we didn't, we didn't, we weren't able to prove by you know tons of victories that this actually mattered to people. But we did learn two really important things. First, we were in a couple primaries. And we were able to show that in a primary, where it's especially a safe seat primary, 
where you know a Democrat or a Republican is voting for one Democrat or another Democrat, um, knowing that their team is going to win. This issue is really powerful because when you're not worried about whether your team's going to win, then you're worried about you know who do you actually value in your team. And so when we could talk about this candidate cared about ending the corrupting influence of money in politics, and this candidate was part of the corrupting influence of money in politics, there was a significant shift at a very low cost, um, even in Republican seats. Right? So, so this is a lesson that we ought to be fighting in primaries, especially safe seat primaries, to create the votes necessary to pass reform. But the other thing that was really important was the politics of resignation apply here dramatically. So if you're in a congressional race and you're saying, you should vote for this guy because this guy really cares about ending the corrupting influence of money in politics, most people would think, one congressperson? What's one congressperson going to do? There's no, there's no reason I should be changing my vote on the basis of this issue with this one congressperson because we're never going to, with one congressperson, change anything. So the fact that it seemed impossible to make anything different weakens the significance of that kind of intervention, right? Which is partly what led me to think, is there a way to raise this issue at a national level where if it got prominence, which of course requires being on a debate stage, which of course is not yet certain, but if it got prominence, it could begin to get people to think, oh, hey, here's a way in which we might do this, something. And, and what's really convinced me to you know, push forward and to continue in this race despite giving up the resignation part is we did an internal poll where um, we basically you know, described me, you know, my good looks, my glasses in particular. We had pictures of my glasses. Um, uh, the boots, they were there too. Um, uh, and uh, you know, the policies that I cared about. Um, so, you know, there are thousands, this is a major survey done by one of the most respected democratic survey firms, uh, Drew Weston's firm, um, and described an outsider making reforming the system the first priority. And it totally blew up the race. Totally blew up the race. Now, it's not a fair, the numbers are not fair predictions of how people will vote because it wasn't a kind of, here's the good things about Lessig, here's the bad things about Lessig, here's the good things about Hillary, the bad things about Hillary. It wasn't that. It was just, what's the effectiveness of the message? And what it did was to really convince me that if we had a way to get people to recognize there's actually a way to do something about this, um, I think it would uh, you know, explode uh, energy and focus the party in a way that right now, the party doesn't want to get focused because the politicians inside the party are so used to assuming the public doesn't care about this and the public would never do anything about that. And so that's the fight. Well, can, can I interrupt you for one question? It hasn't been addressed at all, and it, I'll be very succinct. I, I'm a mother of four children, and I'm a strong proponent of freedom and liberty. And um, with, I know you talked earlier about internet and privacy. I don't use social media. I feel like my freedom is closely tied to my privacy. And how do you address issues like the internet becoming more um, monitoring, more of a socialized education, and that being implemented into sort of a, a big brother socialized education with a lot of monitoring and a lot of filtering truth and filtering maybe paths to freedom. Uh, how would you address that as, for a society as a whole, but also for my four children and my grandchildren and posterity? Well, I'm going to talk about, let me just talk about one part of that, because this relates to what I was describing before. Um, you know, the internet originally is a very privacy-protective architecture. 
you couldn't tell who people were, what they were doing, where they were from. And what we've seen over the past 20 years is layer upon layer of new technologies added to the internet to make it trivial to know who you are, what you're doing, and where you're from. Now, it's been driven for commercial reasons and for government reasons. Commercial reasons, because if they can know all those things about you for the reasons that the question over here raised, it makes it easier for them to figure out that you're the sort of person who's going to buy Nike sneakers as opposed to me who's, you know, got boots, right? So, so, that, so that's commercial drive to that. And then the government drive to that is, you know, especially after 9-11, there was an extraordinary push by our government to build infrastructures of surveillance to make it possible to find the terrorists. Okay, those two things began to work together. And we've produced a world of massive internet surveillance, um, and, it, and, and it's going to take an extraordinary effort to figure out how we dial that back. Um, so you've described a problem which no one right now has a clue about how we begin to address. But I think the beginning is to talk about the values we think are important. And my view is the value that's important here is giving people the autonomy that privacy is intended to give them. And you know they might choose to engage in certain kind of behavior, um, and and I have no problem with aggregate you know statistics being gathered about populations so that I know that certain types of people. Have, but but I really think we have lost sight of the need for the architecture to allow me to live um, without surveillance because right now everything everything is perpetual. I think the government well, corporate I, complex works together right. as they one do. machine, and I'm wondering. Well, um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> um, You're exactly yeah. right. And, you know, I, um, I, I've had this long history of being Cassandra. Um, and my first round of this was my first book uh, was Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. And what I said in that book was, look, the Internet's a great privacy freedom place right now, but that's just an accident of its architecture. And government and business are going to work together to change it into privacy-destroying control technology. And David Pogue reviewed it in the New York Times. And he's like, oh, this digital Cassandra. He's given us no reason to believe that the internet's going to become a kind of Soviet-style place of perpetual surveillance. And anyway, you can just turn it off. You know? And, and um, now, when this quote gets put up on the screen, people are quite astonished <laughs> that back then nobody believed it. But you know now it's hard not to avoid it because I think you're exactly well. I, well, I do. I do need to uh, cut this off here. And Larry, uh, I'd love to thank you. This has been a great hour, and also I, for one, would really like to see you on that next thank you. Democratic thank debate you. stage. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>